Uh, John 12, let's start there. It says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, and there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus with one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, and they're usually in an alabaster jar, big alabaster flask, very expensive, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. And then drop down to verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Do you know what they call that? Palm Sunday, what's another one? It's called the triumphal entry. Have you heard that? Let's all say it together. Triumphal entry. One, two, three. Okay, we'll we'll do it together. One, two, three. Perfect. That's the triumphal entry. Interesting um, insight. Commentators declare it as such. Now let's go over to Matthew 26. It's another occurrence, and this time it's a different woman. Um... She does a different thing with the oil, and Judas has managed to infiltrate the rest of the disciples and have them as critical as he was the first time. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, verse 6, excuse me, verse 6, Matthew 26. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and poured it, this time where? On his head, on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil may have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my what? She did it for what? Burial. Burial. Interesting. So those are passages. You can note them. Um... I find it very interesting, especially in conjunction with the passage tonight. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We uh, finished, I believe, around verse 4 last week. And uh, Paul was burdened and troubled by the fact that they were ridiculing him and upset with him and deriding him because he hadn't come to visit and they were trying to attack his character and thus attack the validity of his message. And he, he's just sorrowful over them who've done this and he wants to come to them. He's reflecting on that. Um, and he talks about how out of anguish of heart and many tears uh, that you should be grieved but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. And then he picks up uh, from a previous epistle that was written in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We studied that many, many weeks ago. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who was caught in a... Uh, he was sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, this, this was a strange church still. And he, he gets upset with them because they're not confronting the sin in the church. And so he tells them to cast such a one out as to be uh, kind of handled by Satan. 
And I'll explain that momentarily. But now he's going to address uh, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians the restoration of this man. The reason why we know it's the same guy is because he uses the term such a man. And he's reflecting in the same occurrence in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Thank God, and this is Paul's kind of pastoral shepherding heart. He doesn't say the man's name so it's reflected eternally in the word of God forever. Um, he's restoring him. So not only is there discipline in the church, but there's also restoration in the church. And we'll pick up in verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. And this is who he's speaking of. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. And he actually said that in 1 Corinthians 5, this idea of walking in obedience to the discipline of the church and now in the restoration of the church. Verse 10, now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us. I want to repeat that, lest Satan should take advantage of us. Again, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And we'll see what one of those are momentarily. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. So he he was troubled in his spirit. He saw the door open, but he couldn't go. And the reason why he couldn't go is because Titus hadn't arrived yet. And Paul's not a one-man show. And and he knew that that, that the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, and the Lord didn't provide that. And he didn't sense to go there. So instead of going to Troas, he departs from Macedonia. Verse 14, he then uh, sums it all up with this very interesting declaration. He says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not. As so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. And this is Paul's declaration to this church. And he lays this out. Um, I'm just going to cover a few of them, and then I kind of want to focus on the church discipline side of it, and then what Paul is declaring at the conclusion of the chapter. Um. I touched on the fact that the man, more than likely, and other scholars may think it not be him, but in, in all likelihood, especially with the word usage that Paul has declared here, that this is the man in 1 Corinthians 5 that was sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, Paul looked at the church and said, look, you've got to discipline this guy. So they took it to heart. They disciplined him. And now they're withholding forgiveness uh, from, from the man that they have extended this discipline And Paul gets word of it, and they've written to him saying, you know, he's still kicked out, he's broken, he's repentant. And here's how you can tell when someone is broken and repentant. The Bible says uh, godly repentance with sorrow. Uh, Repentance means change. Uh, Oftentimes people are sorry they got caught. That's not repentance. Uh, I I was so moved um, this week when I was made aware of um, somebody who had gone to... Uh, I have to be careful. Somebody who had gone to someone else 
and had confessed to a sin that they hadn't been caught for. I, don't, I, I find that amazing. Usually most counseling sessions I deal with is somebody got caught doing something awful or somebody wants to catch somebody. Uh, but in this case, the person came and as conviction by the Lord expressed it and wanted restoration. And I watched as, you know, everyone when they're offended or wounded want justice, yeah? And especially when it's personal. And then to see somebody repentant and yielded um, it's very evident. And one, one very key aspect is you don't get caught in it, you confess it. Another area of repentance is you, you, you've given up in trying to defend yourself uh, in the sense that you, you want to maintain your stature, you want to maintain your position, you want to maintain whatever it is you had previous, and you'll, you'll, you'll deal with that and confess that and declare repentance of that as long as you can get back what you had lost. Tracking that? That's not necessarily repentance. This fella, when, when he was put out to pasture, and, and the idea was, look, when you come to church, if you're sleeping with your girlfriend or, or you're selling drugs or you're, or you're in a, an adulterous relationship or, or, or fill in the blank and, and you want the church to do the discipline, first thing is the Bible says your sins will find you out. So I'm, I'm not a heresy hunter. I'm not a referee I'm not the one to go in and judge whether the evidence weighs. And the idea is when it is clear and it is very understood and everyone's aware of it, then you can address it if they continue to not repent of it. And it's evident to the body. Well, then we can address it. In cases of pastors, we're more strictly judged, but we also have a higher level of um, accusation. You have to have two or three witnesses, but the judgment of it is far more intense uh, than it is for someone who's not in the ministry. And so we don't play referee. I, I, I learned that a long time ago. And, and you listen to one man, one man talk and another man talk. The first man sounds completely correct. And then you hear the other person. And then you're like, I have no idea. And really, the majority of counseling is just dealing with truth and you, you never get it. Everyone always defends themselves, hides, does their whole gimmick, and they want the authority of the pastor or they want the authority of the church to defend their position, and I'm not interested in that. I'm just not interested in it. But when it is evident and abundantly clear, as everyone in the church was well aware of this, and he was caught in the middle of it, um, and it was, it was known and it was practiced, Paul kind of turns to him and just says, look, you're not doing this guy any favors because he has no, he has no relationship vertically. All of his relationships are horizontal, and that's not a double entendre, I guess. It, it, the idea is he, he's not operating in the context of wanting to honor God. So he's just becoming numb to the things of God while you're letting him have the comfort of the church. And a church is a comfortable place to be because you have people you can talk to, you can get help, you can get a handout, you can have a, an ear to bend. You can do all these things and have that in a church. But the reality is, wait a minute, time out. This is a place where we want to avoid all that. Why bring it in and live in that if everything that's being taught and, 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 and espoused is not being applied? Why are you here? Well, it's kind of like a kid that is just, I don't give a flip about mom and dad. I'll burn this house down. I'm just waiting for you to die so I can get the inheritance. That kind of a child, you just, hey, say, hey, there's the door. Lord bless you. And don't let it hit you on the way out. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. This isn't yours. 
We're stewards of your life. You, a man, uh, raise a child in the way that they will go according to their bend. And when they're old, they will not depart thereof. And the hope, hope is everyone has a free will. You do the best you can trying to raise that child. But if, if they stray, there's that free will. And, and you have to sit there and say, no. And I remember doing that with Natasha. I, I told her, I said, I love you. I cannot, I cannot subsidize your life in this capacity. I'm not going to pay for you to slowly kill yourself. I can't do that in good conscience. This home is always here. There's a, there's a roof over your head. There's a bed to lie in and meals to eat and a family to love. But none of this is here to subsidize your disobedience to God when it's well known of all of us and you flaunt it. It's just not going to happen. And that was hard. You got to go. And the idea was, go out there and saturate yourself in the stuff you love. And then see it for what it is. And if you don't like it, this is waiting for you. But understand what this is. This is a home that is a home designed because we serve the Lord. That's why we have the walls of security and the rules of understanding. And you're welcome back, but you have to adhere to that and agree to it. And she did, and, and she went through that. And, and I see the application of what Paul says. And, and uh, he received the punishment, but apparently uh, he had repented. And what they did worked like it did with Natasha. It worked. And um, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, uh, when you are gathered together, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The idea is just have him get it out of his system and realize the return is not worth the investment. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. Um, and Paul told him the, uh, to put the man outside the spiritual, social protection of the church family until he repented. And, and as I said earlier, it worked. Um, the Corinthian church applied the punishment and the man repented. And now Paul is calling the church to restore the repented man. Now, I, I love what one author writes. He says, they were just as wrong in withholding forgiveness and restoration to the man when he repented as they were to welcome him with open and approving arms when he was in sin. Paul's correcting the church in both cases. Uh, another author, Morgan, writes, if discipline is largely lacking in the church of today, so also is the grace of forgiving and comforting those who, having done wrong, are truly repentant. Um, when the passage says that we read earlier, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. What they're saying is if you, if you don't restore him and if you don't operate in the, in the realm to see his repentance and restore him, he's going to be swallowed up with too much sorrow. And this is a harsh stance that they're having towards a man and is putting him in real danger. This author writes, by withholding restoration and forgiveness from the man, they risked ruining him, causing him to be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Uh, John Calvin wrote, restoring work towards sinners is just as important as rebuking work. And so we have to be as understanding in relation to that. Hodge writes, when the offender is made to feel that while his sin is punished, he himself is loved, and that the end aimed is aimed at is not his suffering but his good, he is more likely to be brought to repentance. Um, the word that Satan would take advantage, lest Satan should take advantage of us, and I repeated that, lest Satan should take advantage of us. Take advantage is a Greek word, pleonotekeo, uh, and it just simply means the idea of cheating someone out of something that belongs to them. 
So Satan takes advantage of you because what the church possesses the most of is the ability to forgive. Why? I mean, that's a genuine question, why, and you can't answer it. It's not. Because we're forgiven. We're all here professing Christ as our Savior for one simple reason. We've been forgiven. He who sins, he, he who loves, he, to the level you forgive, you will be forgiven. And, and the idea is that we're called to forgive. And this idea that he takes advantage of us by cheating us of something that belongs to us, we have this great joy to be able to forgive. Why? Because we've been forgiven. And Satan uses this device This author writes, when we are ignorant of Satan's strategies, he is able to take things from us that belong to us in Jesus. Things like peace, joy, fellowship, sense of forgiveness and victory. How can you you feel forgiven when you can't forgive someone else? To to me, it just doesn't, doesn't register. To withhold forgiveness from the repentant is to play into the hands of Satan. There's nothing more dangerous than to give Satan a chance of reducing a sinner to despair. I mean, if if this is the way that you raise your children, you're going to cause them to just be crushed. You want them them to repent, but in some cases, parenting is, I only love you if you're a good boy or a good girl, meaning you do what I want. But in this case, Paul is saying, look, you, you separate the discipline when the child, you, you're, you're showing them that to engage in this sin is painful and not good, and we're disciplining you so that you can see it's bad for you. But when you, when you come to that understanding, our love for you has never changed, and my love for Natasha never changed. Our heart was broken when she moved out. I laid it out to her. I said, you're, you're choosing to leave. I laid the rules out. I made it clear. We love you. This is your home. And these are the rules. And we're asking you, please, for your sake. And she said, I'm leaving. And I say, you know this is a choice you're making because this house is waiting for you. This is, I just don't want those rules. Okay, I understand that. You're an experiential learner. And doggone it, she gave it a good college try. For over, over a year, she tried to prove that you can live without God in your life. And she just came to a place where she had to grasp it, and she did. So in this passage, the thing we see um, preeminently at the beginning is this idea of church discipline. And in church discipline, um, Paul wants us to address sin. Now, I have associated myself on three occasions in church discipline, and um, and I, I am working diligently towards a restoration in one case um, f- for the restoration of a brother. And it, it takes a lot of work. People are involved. And you know what the, the difficult part of it is in the restoration process? The forgiveness of the ones that were hurt. Doesn't it feel good to be justified in your anger? They wronged me. They got caught. 
And I just want you to know for the rest of your life, aren't you glad God doesn't operate that way? The idea is to come to a place of forgiveness. Well, that also, that forgiveness is a lot easier for people when they see a repentant individual. What is a repentant individual? They don't have an agenda. They're yielded. James writes, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know how we know that's true? Because we're here. We're here for one simple reason. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And all he asked of us is to acknowledge our sin and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's why we're here. That's, that's why we have a guilt-free conscience. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, re, we freely receive it. We sing of it. We read of it. We study it. And we, we struggle to apply it in the, in the lives of others. We receive it freely for ourselves, but struggle to apply it for others in our lives. Yes? Hello? So in the two passages I read earlier, John 12, Matthew 26, you had two women who came to Jesus with alabaster jars. One poured it at his feet and wiped, wiped his feet with the perfume and with her hair. His feet were filthy. Her hair was the, the product of, of the trade. She was a immoral woman. She was a prostitute. Her hair and her perfume were the two necessary items for her industry, highly valued. She dirties her hair, pours out this perfume. Everyone smelled like the north end of a southbound donkey in those days, and perfume was very important. And, and her hair, and she's, she's wiping his filthy feet with this very expensive perfume and with her hair. And she's weeping, mixing it with her tears, and being ridiculed by all who are around saying, don't you know who this woman is? Right? And then what follows that? After the, 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 the Judas addressing it and saying what a waste of money and he's totally a gimmick guy. He had an agenda. Well then, Jesus says what she's doing is for my what? Burial. burial. For my burial. And then we read immediately following that, the next day what happens? Do we have to go back or? I asked you, huh? The triumphal entry. Remember, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, triumphal entry. Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, the king, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of Israel, the Messiah. Their king has arrived. And this triumphal entry, he comes in. Now, as he's coming in, his feet are saturated with this fragrant perfume. But we also find in Matthew 26, another woman comes in and pours it over his head. Saturates his head, goes into his clothes, pours this whole thing. The whole room is filled with the fragrance. It's into his clothing, into his beard, into his hair. And again, two doses of very expensive perfume worth denarii, very, a, a year's wage, and this one is worth just an enormous fortune. And the longer that the, the, the herbs rest in the oil, 
the more valuable it becomes. It's like wine aged. And they pour this over and, and again he declares for my burial. So all that to be said, when we get to the passage of Scripture, following this idea of restoring a repentant sinner. And, and we're hesitant in the church to restore a repentant sinner. And Paul addresses this, trying to get this church straight. And he lays it out. He says, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And his devices are to allow us to receive forgiveness, but not extend it to others. And then we crush him in sorrow. And he talks about all this. But then look at verse 14. 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And the term Paul uses in this concept of triumph in Christ is a Greek uh, production of what the Romans would call a Roman triumph. They would return from a conquest of a people and, uh, and there was a procedure. And I want to read it to you what this conquest looks like as they enter in. It's borrowed from the ancient Roman triumph, the eyes of the world of that day. Most glorious spectacle that imagination could conceive is what Meyer said. But here's what it is. In a triumph, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome to the capital. First came the state officials, the senate, then came the trumpeters, then carried the spoils taken from the conquered land, then came the pictures of the conquered land, then models of the conquered citadels and ships. There followed the white bull for sacrifice which would be made, then there walked to the captive princes, leaders, generals, and chains, shortly to be flung into prison, in all probability almost immediately to be executed. Then came the uh, lictors bearing the rods, uh, followed by the musicians with their Liars, and then the priests swinging the censers with the sweet-smelling incense burning in them. And after that came the general himself. Finally came the army wearing all their decorations and shouting, Lo triumphe, their cry of triumph as the procession moved through the streets, all decorated and garland amid the cheering crowds. It made a tremendous day, which might happen only once in a lifetime. That, that is from Barclay. And then this author writes, also Barclay, says, that is the picture that is in Paul's mind. He sees Christ marching in triumph throughout the world and himself in that conquering train. It is a triumph which Paul is certain nothing can stop. And Paul sees himself as sharing in the triumph of Jesus, the captain of the Lord's army. And Paul is one of the Lord's chief officers. So, he says, furthermore, when I came to you, or excuse me, he says, verse 14, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, stop. Fascinating to me, and here's another picture of, of this Roman triumph. Uh, and fascinating to me, the two women in the book of John, John 12, Matthew 26, what are they doing? Why, why are they pouring oil on Jesus? Worshipping? It's for his burial? But why are they doing it? They're, they're, he's saying it's for his burial. But what's motivating them to do it? Yes. Back there. Okay, why did they have a love for him? Forgiveness. There it is. Say it louder. Forgiveness. 
You may have said it, I didn't hear it. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Everyone say forgiveness. forgiveness. Have you ever been forgiven for anything? Isn't it fragrant and lovely? Don't you get endeared to people that are merciful and gracious? Aren't they lovely people to be around? Hello? Aren't they lovely people to be around? We love to receive it, don't we? We hate to give it. Their lives are fragrant. Ours are a stench. We love things that smell good, but we're not so much concerned with how we smell to others. My point is, the brokenness of these women pouring out their adoration and love to the Lord, he's forgiven me. They give everything. The room fills with his fragrance. And then what happens immediately after that, the triumphal entry? Watch the passage with that in mind. First of all, here's a diffuser, right? You've seen those? It's way bigger than that. They're just pouring out the whole bottle. First on his feet, tears, her hair. And then you see the second anointing, the oil over the head. It's, uh, it's fascinating. And it's intense. I want to make sure that that next, yeah. So watch this. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ through and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we're the aroma of death leading to death and to the other we are the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? We diffuse the fragrance of Christ. Triumphal entry. What follows a triumphal entry? We gotta do our Bible study. What follows a triumphal entry? Crucifixion. It gets it gets real ugly after that, doesn't it? He's saturated in this perfume. And this fragrance of Christ gets a robe put over him. And they mock him. And they whip him. And the smell of the perfume saturating their nostrils as they're beating him. The purple robe smells like it because it's just saturated with his sweat. They put the crown of thorns on his head deep into the hair and the scalp saturated with the fragrance. It's being diffused. It's angering them. What's he doing the whole time? He's forgiving them. They put the bag over his head and they tie his hands behind his back. They sucker punch him, say, prophesy, I hit you. And the cloth bag, fragrant. The nails as they pound them in and they smell. As his body is just sweating profusely and draining every bit of moisture, trying to sustain enough to stay alive. And everyone smells it. 
And all they can think of is death. Kill him, kill him, kill him. And yet what's diffusing? Forgiveness. The room's filled with it. His hair is filled with it. His clothes are filled with it. His body's filled with it. He leads us in triumph. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's the triumph? We sang it in the last song, which I I didn't even ask for. What kind of a God would lay down his princely garments to be beaten? He had to endure all that to forgive. Blood must be shed for the remission of sins. For him to forgive... He endured the cross because he loves you. He wanted to restore you. You're not a hopeless sinner. There's hope for every man and woman who would come to Christ. It's the fragrance of life if you would but smell the sacrifice of Christ. These women sacrificed to to prepare him for his burial because they knew that he would rise. They wanted a new life. They had been given it in Christ. They were grateful And that fragrance of forgiveness saturated the room. And to the ones that wanted him dead, it was the the smell of of death. It was nauseating. They were tired of it as they they pounded him and beat him and, and speared him and lashed him. But it's the fragrance. I thought about this idea of his triumph. Not a Roman triumph. The scripture says he nailed that to the cross. Meaning everything that was against us, he had victory over. His last word in Greek, three words in English, to telestai. He couldn't even get it out of his mouth because his tongue was so swollen. He had to moisten it with the sop from the sponge. He didn't drink it. But as his tongue loosened enough, he said it to telestai. It's real simple paid in full it is finished transaction complete victory secured you are mine I have triumphed there's triumph in death death to your selfish unforgiving nature and life in receiving forgiveness and extending it And here the triumph is declared by Paul because he too read the gospel and saw this woman's life. I think I want to conclude tonight with one simple thought and then I'll answer questions if you have any. I love this passage at funerals. I absolutely love this passage at funerals. And every time I try to think of another passage, I always come back to this because usually I have the privilege to do funerals for people that I've come to deeply love. I've read it to you before, but it's, it's so interesting. A good name is like a precious perfume. Better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth, right? And I, I love that idea You use the word good with a name. And a good name is like a beautiful or precious fragrance. 
and then reverse it. A bad name is a stench. Right? Nobody names their children Jezebel. Even Judas, the name Judas, we have the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude. It's a diminutive form of Judas because Jesus' half-brother couldn't even use his name anymore, Judas, because it had been ruined forever. So when he wrote the epistle, he said, the epistle of Jude. No one would have read it otherwise. Nobody names their kids Adolf Hitler. Maybe they do, but they're really struggling. Right? These are names that are stench. Ted Bundy. Charles Manson. We can just go down the line. And you think of them, and they're just awful. But with the synesthesia, it's the rhetoric term, where you combine two senses of the human body to do a, a turn of a phrase that ruminates in your mind. For example, she smelled like the Taj Mahal looks at midnight. Beautiful. Smell, sight, combined, a ruminating thought that rolls over in your mind and captivates you. She smelled like the Taj Mahal looks at midnight, and those two together, you, wow. The beauty of the language. It's where you combine two senses to make it clear, and so Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, uses this rhetoric, and he says a good name, sound, is like a precious fragrance smell. Better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. Well, that's a weird one, but it's not so weird. You see, everyone is born with a name. You only know if it's good or bad at the end of your life. And you know how your name is a precious fragrance? Because you've received forgiveness and you've extended it. You're not bitter. You're not angry. You're not self-centered, self-consumed. You've died. Christ, Christ triumphed when he said it is finished. He died, you die. I, Rob McCoy, have been crucified with Christ. It's not my agenda. I surrender, I yield. It's a heart of service. That's a fragrance. It's a merciful heart. It's a forgiving heart. People love to be around that kind of person. And I'll tell you what, you know it at the end of their life when it's time to do their memorial service and the place is packed. Because the amazing thing about smell is it's the number one sense for memory recollection and Solomon knew what he was doing when he tied it with sound. When you hear that name, it's like a fragrance. It draws you to a remembrance as smell is the number one sense for memory recollection. You remember that life and the way they poured into you and upon you. And you come, you're drawn, you can't but come, you're busy, you, give up, you take up work, you fly to sit in that room and give honor to a good name. How many people are going to be at your funeral? And are they coming because they're going to want to see the will read? In some cases, you don't even have that. How have you lived? I'll close with this last thought. There was a man, Harold Mansellian, and I, I've shared the story before, but it's been a while. Not Harold Mansellian, I'm sorry, Harold Haig. 
I worked at an Armenian church. It was a congregational church. It was ethnic, so the, the population was dwindling. It had been in Fresno for 100 years, if not more. I was a non-Armenian working in the church. And I'd come in, and they had a very limited budget. So there was a pastor, an assistant pastor, a youth director, and a children's ministry director. Those are the, and the children's ministry director and the youth director were both part-time positions, so two full-time ministers and two part-time and they were struggling to make budget. And their building was paid for and everything. So we were limited on staff. And I'd come in and the receptionist at the counter was a volunteer. And so was the man who did all the busy work for the pastors. He was like their, their steward. He just came in and what can I do for you? And he committed his whole life. He'd follow up. He'd do visitations. He'd do everything. And he never asked for a dime. His name was Harold Haig. And he, he would, he'd get a thank you periodically, but he had all the dirtiest of work. And he was the guy that would clean the trash cans and he'd go and he'd get the sanctuary ready. He'd do stuff that nobody else would do. They couldn't pay for a janitor. And he did all this stuff. And I'd, I'd look at him and this guy was in his 70s and he's just going around doing everything. And, and I always thought he was kind of nerdy and he was a little awkward. I didn't know anything about him. Four years I worked in that place. Never really got to know him. And, and saw him everywhere doing the work that nobody else would do. And I thought he's just, you know, he's just kind of a, a, probably a lonely pensioner and he just does it for the sake of doing it. He didn't have anything else to do. And then he died. And I got to his funeral and I was late that day. And I had to stand outside. The place was packed. Because I was on staff, I knew the side entrance door and I came into the choir section and I stood at the side right next to the speakers, one after another, came to find out he had three daughters and three son-in-laws and he had raised them as a single parent. His wife was bipolar. She had just a schizophrenia like you can't imagine, undiagnosed. She had a traumatic childhood. He loved her and cared for her and cared for the kids and worked hard and would go to work and come back and care for her. And on Thanksgiving, she looked like she was doing great and they they had a wonderful dinner, and she said, I'm going to go for a walk. And she walked down the block and lit herself on fire in a vacant lot. He saw the flames, didn't know what it was, and went to go put out whatever was happening at the neighbor's house, only to find his wife scorched and dying, and, and she would ultimately die. He raised all these girls. They were married to the most unbelievably godly men. The grandkids adored their pop-pop. And one person after another would come up and talk about how Harold Haig loved them and what he did in their lives. Nobody even knew. Most people didn't know that the other person knew that that person knew. It was like a gathering of people in the great escape at the rail station. I don't know if you've seen the movie. We didn't, we didn't know anyone, but he knew all of us. And the place was packed. And then my very first funeral I ever officiated was for a 32-year-old woman, and I happened to be 32. And the Lord drove this point home. 32 years old, it's my first funeral. I'm kind of a renter rev at the mortuary. They couldn't find anyone else. They called our church. Don said, why don't you go get some practice? <clears throat> I sit down. I find that the deceased is 32 years old. She died of a drug, drug overdose. I went to meet with the mother. The mother was there with a deceased daughter. 
who at the time was 11. She had never met her mother. She'd been raised by her grandmother. The grandmother said, you know, I thought just letting the mortuary do it, but I'm a Christian woman and I just, I want to do right by her. She's done nothing but steal and cheat everybody her whole life. And the best thing she ever did was let me raise this child and she didn't even want that. I had to win custody. And she was a delightful lady and the daughter was just precious. And there I was next to the coffin and I brought uh, a kid named Jimmy with me who played guitar. He played guitar. The three of us sang. I said a few words to an empty room save but for two people. One who didn't know her and the other who saw the tragedy of her life and nobody else. We concluded. She gave me a check. I said, I can't take that. She said, no, no, it means a lot to me. I said, I can't take it. I said, I, I had the privilege to kind of cut my teeth and you gave me a chance to be here and I hurt for you and please. And that was kind of where the Lord began this ministry to understand life. The funeral parlor is either going to be empty or full. And it's going to depend on the fragrance. Bitter and smelly of a stench or forgiving and fragrant. 